0: In January, you heard from um, Raymond and Leanne Cook, who are getting ready uh, to go in the mission field. They're in the process of raising support. We kind of heard about uh, some of the stuff that they're going to be doing, and they are here today. So I've asked them to give us um, uh, a brief update kind of on where they're at and where they're headed. So let's give it up for Raymond and
1: Leanne. Uh, hi, good to see you guys again. Uh, we just want to uh, share with you a brief update what we're doing, um, some things new going on in our lives. Uh, we have finished school down in Dallas. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Um, and we have uh, been truly uh, trying to seek the Lord's um, calling, trying to figure out uh, what's next. And so uh, for us, um, what's next is fundraising and um We think that the best thing to do would be to move back here to the St. Louis area to plan our roots and um, continue those efforts. Uh, And we have also, do you want to talk about DTM? And we joined an organization called Disciple of the Nations and um, we've been working really close with them. And Raymond will be working on building more of the program for other missionaries to come through to also do Bible translation. So prayerfully, the Lord will bring more missionaries to DTN. And uh, our, we're, we're hoping to leave to go to the field in roughly 18 months, as soon as we get fundraised. So uh, that's uh, one prayer request that we would ask of you guys. So uh, Thank you very much. And when we move to St. Louis, we're hoping this will be our home church. So we can right. join you guys. <laughs>
0: And what was uh, your uh, degree in? Linguistics. A master's in linguistics. Yeah. Yep. One of the things that um, I know like when you're passionate about ministry, like you just and you feel like God's called you to do something, like you want to do it. You want to do it and you want to do it like right then, right? And I appreciate that even though that's their passion and that's what they want to do, they realize, hey, there's also training that needs to be involved, especially when you talk about taking the Bible and translating it into an entirely new language. And the history of Bible translation, as you can probably talk to Raymond and Leanne about, has not always gone the greatest. When we've tried to rush those things and put people in place without the proper training, um, we can end up with some pretty weird translations out there. (laughs) Um, So anyway, I'm thankful that they've taken the time to get the training. And uh, man, let's be a part of getting them and sending them out. 18 months is kind of their time frame. If not, let's get them sooner and be a part of uh, changing the world for Jesus in the section that they're going to. So we're excited for them coming back here. And, um, and however we can uh, partner with them uh, as Liberty as a church and individually to make that happen, uh, we look forward to that. So uh, welcome back, cooks. Would you all stand with me? We're going to uh we're going to pray. We're going to pray for a couple different things going on in in our midst and in our in our country. Father, we we come before you and we're excited that uh the cooks have finished up school, that you're bringing them back here. God, um it, it can be tough raising funds, so I pray that you'd open up those doors and just open up the heavens financially, to get them uh, the money they need uh, to get on the mission field, God. And I thank you for paving the way for them. So far, we know you'll pave the way the rest of the way. So I pray your blessing upon them um, financially. I pray your blessing upon them spiritually, God, just as the enemy will want to thwart their efforts both here and abroad. Uh, I thank you, God, that they've connected with an amazing organization. And so we pray for disciple of the nation, God, and the work that they're doing, wanting to further your gospel, wanting to literally get the Bible into people's um, heart language so that they can read it, they can grow, they can know you, Lord. Lord, we want to also lift up uh, Marine Lance Corporal Jared Schmitz's family who lives here in Wentzville and was one of the 13 military members um, who lost their lives this past week in Afghanistan. Uh, We grieve with them. We ask for uh, your tender mercies to be upon them. God, I, I, you know where their hearts are at and where their family members are at. And, and we pray, God, that um, if they don't know you, uh, they would come to know you. We pray that if they do know you, that you would draw them very uh, near to you during this time. We also pray for, you, for the other military members, families, that, that lost their life across this country this past week. God, um, your word says in the Psalms, that you are near to the brokenhearted. So I pray that they would call upon you. I pray for those that don't know you. Um, God, you would use this, this horrible, horrible tragedy, that you would use it to bring them to know you, God. We also pray for the Afghans who lost their lives in that same attack, and um, very likely they didn't know you, and uh, their families uh, don't know you, God, which should emphasize to us the need to send out missionaries to the lost, to send out people like the cooks who are willing to go, God. So whatever part, and we have a part individually and corporately to play, let us play that part well to send out uh, missionaries into the field. We pray, God, that you would use this tragedy and those people's lives in Afghanistan uh, to draw them to you, that the believers there would be able to somehow miraculously make contact with those families and share with them the hope of the gospel and the truth of the gospel. Lord, You you are in control, and sometimes it it can feel hopeless to us, and it can feel like in the midst of these different things, it's like, man, what in the world is going on? And uh, God, would You shine bright in these situations? Shine bright. Show Yourself to be the one true God who sent His Son to redeem a people for His own. And and you don't care about culture. You don't care about race or skin color, God. You care about redeeming a people for your own, whether it's the barbarian or the Scythian Lord, male, female, Greek, Jew. You want to see all of them come to know you, God. So we ask for the lost, that you'd save them from all different backgrounds, God, from all different races, from all different nationalities, that you would be gracious to save and continue to save. People here, Lord, many of us know you, and you've been gracious to save us. Please continue, Lord. We ask your gospel to go forth in its full power and its full might, Lord, that your spirit would take your word and apply it to the hearts of people, and they would respond in faith to you, God. Be lifted up now, we ask, with the authority you give us in Jesus. Amen. We're going to wrap up First Thessalonians today. I know. <clears throat> you know, I didn't have a chance to, to look it up, but I was thinking during worship that I, it took about a year and a half. Now, granted, we took some breaks for some different sermons and some different events, but it was about a year and a half, I believe, yeah, to go through First Thessalonians. But when you look at the history of some famous uh, preachers, um, some preachers, I think there's one that took like, uh, what was it, 5 to 10 years to go through Ephesians. Another took like 15 years to go through one of the smaller books. So, um, we're, you know, we're doing pretty good here. A year and a half, 1 Thessalonians, that, that's not too bad. So what I'd like to do today is kind of do a recap of the book um, with a review, uh, kind of a, a review of some final exhortations as we um, end our time in 1 Thessalonians. I was reading online yesterday, and it is sad. It's gotten to the point when you read a headline, like I'm like, is that from like the Babylon Bee, or is that actually a real headline? I mean, and sadly, a lot of times it's a real headline. So the headline the other day uh, that I read was um, Harvard University appoints a new chief chaplain who's an atheist. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So I had, to, I had to click on it. Yeah, no, sure enough, i um, Harvard University for their chief chaplain, just appointed an atheist um, to oversee their chaplaincy. Um, so there's no punchline there. <laughs> okay. Here's the thing, because I was kind of thinking about that, and then I was thinking about, you know, the Thessalonians, they actually found themselves in a very similar culture to what we find ourselves in uh, today. It's kind of like believe whatever you want. So the Thessalonians, like the culture, the Roman culture had like the panoply of all the gods, right? And you could believe in whatever god you wanted to. There was one god, really, as it, as it developed, there was one god you did have to bow down to and pledge allegiance to. And that came to be the Roman emperor, right? But as long as you did that, it was kind of like anything goes. Now, we have a God today that we have to bow down to if you want to be okay in America. That's really like the God of political correctness. As long as you toe the line with that, you can do whatever you want. Whatever God you want, you can serve him. But, but you've got to toe that political correctness line. Otherwise, bad things happen, right? You get canceled, if not worse. So the Thessalonians, um, they had that culture. Hey, do whatever you want. But you got to bow down to this God. What did they say? Eh, sorry, not doing it. What do we need to say? Eh, sorry, not doing it. And if you think about it, like they were surrounded by a culture of death. I mean, you can read literally ancient formulas from the first couple hundred years A.D. of potions to help women basically try to abort their child. You can read it. And the abandonment of children. You know, they'd have their baby, and then they had a wall that they'd actually abandon the children at. So this culture of death, even if you think about people would gather together by the thousands and cheer on two men fighting to the death with the gladiatorial games, right? So there's a culture of death. We have a culture of death today in many forms. One key one being abortion more prolific uh, than it was even back then, more acceptable than it was back then. There was one man, he, he's one of the early, what's called an early church father, just like a key influential person in the early life of the church. So kind of like after the apostles, who were the kind of the key figures in different makers, they're called church fathers. One of the early church fathers was Clement of Alexandria. He was born around 150 A.D., he was born to pagan parents. That makes sense. But his pagan parents were actually pretty devoted to their paganism. So he was actually well-schooled in all Greek mythology. From top to bottom, he like knew it backwards and forwards because his parents were like all in. Nowadays, if you call it, now, it's almost like an insult if you call someone a pagan, but if someone would identify themselves as a pagan, actually it can mean different things. It can mean all sorts of stuff, but a lot of times it just means like I don't really believe anything. But paganism back then meant, you, hey, you kind of you were devoted to something, if not in word, um, def- or if not indeed, definitely in word. So he's schooled in, in Greek mythology and all the different gods. And what happens? Well, he gets saved. But here's the thing. He had all the knowledge and language that an insider would have for these pagan religions. So what does he do? He uses his extensive knowledge of this pagan mythology to reach the pagans, to write books refuting the paganism and arguing for Christianity. In fact, his three major works actually have survived to this day, which is pretty unheard of for books going back that early. We have some manuscripts from, uh, and bits and pieces of his other writings, but his three main ones we actually have in their entirety. You can actually read them if you want to. But what is he doing? He's arguing for Christianity. He's arguing against the paganism of his day. And because he knew it so well, he can make the arguments quite succinctly. What's my point here? He reached out to the people he was most familiar with in regards to their culture and background. Like he used his, where God had brought him to reach people. And this is what we see the Thessalonians do. Like they get saved. And they immediately are reaching out to the culture they just got pulled out of. They're reaching out to them. We're going to look at a couple verses in a bit. But the application for us is this. God saves us out of certain backgrounds. So that we can go back and reach those people. Like if you think about it. Who's, who's best to reach drug dealers? like a former drug dealer. He's going to know the lingo. Who's best to reach people from all sorts of different walks of life? A lot of times it's going to be the person that God has saved out of that walk of life. And all of us have a walk of life. And you're like, oh, I'm just a truck driver. Well, you know what? Truck drivers have like their own little thing or something. I don't get it, but they got it. Okay. And you, you know that lingo and that talk and you can reach them and maybe you're just an engineer. Well, let me tell you, you guys are like a different breed, okay? <laughs> you guys, like, think differently. It might be the right way to think, but you definitely think differently. And, and there's engineers that need to be reached. Same with college students. College students, they're, they're, they're at a time and a place, and the best people, in my opinion, to reach college students are college students. I remember when I was wrapping up my college uh, career. I had just graduated, and I was driving back, and I was like, I- "I'll never have the opportunities that I had with those people that I had the last four years." And it's true, I haven't. All right, that was for a season, and I used those opportunities usually for the best that I could. College students, you need you. You've got a a, a small window of opportunity. Now, some of you, because you stretch out your education, you got a little bit more of a window. Okay, <laughs> but most of you just have uh, you know four years. Some of you, you know, you know. Uh, go five or six or seven—that's fine. Um, but the point is, in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's a small window that you have to reach people in that area, and they need to be reached. It doesn't matter if you're at a private school that's Christian or a public school; like there's unbelievers everywhere. So, so have those conversations. Reach those people. Same if you're if you're in high school, whether you're a home school, private school, public school. Um, you know, I saw someone that that I used to know pretty well, um, a former student grew up in my ministry. Yesterday was posted on Facebook, mocking Christianity and mocking the resurrection. I mean, those, those, those people, there are people around you in your walk of life that don't know Jesus and they need to know Jesus. And God places you in that spot to reach those people. Each of us has a sphere of influence. Some, it might be a little bit bigger, some of them might be a little bit smaller, but you have ser- spheres of influence. Uh, some of you, I, I, I will never and, and all the rest of us will never walk into your place of work. Okay, we just won't. You have a sphere of influence that literally only you have, from this church at least. Hopefully there's other believers at your work. But we'll never walk in there. And some of us won't ever walk into, onto your school grounds. And some of us won't ever walk and be around your relatives. But that's your sphere of influence that you're called to reach those people. God doesn't want you to be faithful with the entire world and trying to reach them. Now, he does in one sense, yes. But what he wants us to start with is our sphere of influence. Our sphere of influence. And guess what? Now, we can use our resources, like we will with the cooks, to get them so that they have a sphere of influence far and abroad. So sometimes we use financial resources. But right now, I'm just focused on our sphere of influence in terms of the people we come in contact with and talk to on a somewhat regular basis. The Thessalonians had a sphere of influence, and guess what? They used it to the utmost. That's why Paul, looking first Thessalonians 1, in verse 6 he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers and Macedonia and Achaia. All right, so they're they're an example to all the believers. I mean, these are large geographic areas, friends. Macedonia and Achaia, those are regions. Those aren't like little cities or towns. Macedonia and Achaia, verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, that's a pretty far reach, but look what he says, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Like, hey, y'all have done such a good job sharing the gospel. We don't even have to do it in those areas at this point. Wow. Now, remember, 1 Thessalonians, this church is a brand new church plant. Okay, maybe a couple weeks, a couple months at the most. They didn't waste any time getting busy with the work of the Lord. To me... It seems to indicate, I mean, for you to get the word out to Macedonia and Achaia and even further, you got to be sending out missionaries, right? I mean, someone has to be going. So maybe the the silversmith, I mean, he's journeying and and, and he's selling his stuff or, or whatever. I mean, they're on trade routes and they're using what God has given them and sharing that truth as they're traveling. And they're sending out, maybe they're like, hey, We're going to gather some money. We're going to send you out. We need to get the word out. That's what it looks like happened almost immediately with the Thessalonians. So sometimes you come out of that background and God sends you right back to reach the people in that background. Sometimes you're trained in the background and you go to reach those people, okay? Um, I mean, you put me in a room uh, with Hindus or Buddhists, and I actually will feel right at home with them. And not because I necessarily have any... Now, if they're in America, it, I'll, I'll feel much more comfortable. Why? Um, why? Because for four years, I studied religious studies, and I studied Buddhism and Islam and Muslim and Judaism and a whole bunch of other religions most people have never heard of. And guess what? I avoided the Christian classes. I was at a secular university and they were trying to deconstruct Christianity, so there were two classes I was required for my major in Christianity. So I took those and then I didn't take another single Christian class intentionally. But what did that mean? I got a whole lot of Buddhism and Hinduism and Judaism and Islam. So you put me around those people and I, and I can share with them pretty well and I can relate and I can hear where they're coming from. And, and I'm not just talking like a, a, a surface, you know, uh, because some people think, of oh, re- religious studies. Now I'm, I'm talking like there are so many different branches of Hinduism and, and Buddhism, um, and I can, I can talk with people from each of those branches. And I'm not just saying that. That's not patting me on the back. That just makes sense. That's what my degree was in. Hopefully I learned what my degree was in. Whatever your degree is in, hopefully you're knowledgeable in that area. But guess what? God has used that degree time and time and time again. I have shared with uh, so many Buddhists and, and, and so many uh, Hindus, especially, uh, over and over again, I find myself in situations. Why? I mean, because God gives me those opportunities, He had a, a plan all along. i didn 't even know that was part of his plan. but here I am talking with a Hindu, talking with a Buddhist, and, and, and usually they 're just shocked with you know when a, a a 40-ish year old white man knows about their religion, so that takes them back a little bit. But guess what? When they, when they realize that I've taken the time to get to know their, their religion and I, and I actually know what I'm talking about, it, it's like a perfect door to go through for the gospel. Because I've taken the time to learn, so then they'll usually give me a hearing, so to speak, and it gives me an opportunity to share. Friends, all of us have different backgrounds and areas of knowledge that we have that God has gifted us with. He, God wants us to redeem those for the sake of the gospel. So whether your thing is like computers or video games or knitting or whatever, like use those for the sake of the gospel. Redeem those. So this is what the Thessalonians they do. They come out of the background and they go right back in it to save people. Here's the thing. Our gospel believing leads to gospel living gospel believing leads to gospel living and paul and and you can uh you can see this for yourself open any of his letters except maybe one or two but almost in every single letter paul follows a similar pattern when he writes it he always 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 in almost every single one of his letters he starts out by telling them about who they are who they are in christ and and so anytime you open up like a commentary that's talking about one of the books of the Bible, they'll say, okay, these first three chapters or five chapters or nine chapters, Christ is being taught to them so that they understand who they are in Christ. All the instructions about being is first, and then all the instructions about what they need to do are second. Why? Because we have to understand what our identity is. That is foundational for who we are as a believer. We have to understand who we are before we know what we're supposed to do. So Paul will usually set that up. And that's what he does here. The first two, uh, three chapters, really, when you read it, he's laying the foundation for who they are. Now, he's building them, them up. That's really smart. That's wise. Encourage, build up, exhorting them. So there's still some commands in there, sure. But those first three chapters he is laying the foundation for who they are in Christ. We have to make sure that we understand who we are in Christ. Otherwise, the commands don't make sense. They really don't. And we can end up if we start with the commands first, we usually end up with legalism. And that's why people people who mock Christianity or slam Christianity, they they either never learned about the identity in Christ, or they've just been it's been ignored or skipped over altogether. We have to know what our identity is when it comes to ourselves and God. Because our culture has a huge identity crisis. They don't know who they are. Even some Christians don't know who they are. So every letter that we're seeing here, God reminds us who we are. We have to be reminded who we are over and over and over. Then we're instructed what we're supposed to do. That's why when you read Thessalonians, I mean, it's five chapters. If you haven't read it once in in a full sitting, at least uh, do me the favor of of doing it um, sometime in the next couple days as we wrap up. But the word gospel is mentioned six times in 1 Thessalonians. But the last time it's mentioned is in verse 2 of chapter 3. Why? Because that's what he's doing for the first two chapters and then a couple of verses in chapter 3. I mean, he's giving the gospel. He's grounding them in the gospel. He's talking about the gospel because he wants to make sure the Thessalonians know who they are. That's primary importance. Then once you get past verse 2 and chapter 3, then it becomes about live it out, live it out, live it out, live it out. And he's giving them instructions on what to do. So the gospel, why the focus? Because that deals with who we are. And we have to have identity before action. Know who you are before you know what to do. Now, we just finished the Olympics. Uh, Some people are like, they get into the Olympics, all right? And they, they just watch like every minute. You probably had whatever that's called, the peacock subscription. So you could watch, you know, four different streams at once if you wanted to, all right? Um, other people don't, didn't really care much. But there was a wrestler this year, Kyle Snyder. Wrestler. His record, uh, I think it was maybe just in high school, was 179 and zero. And so <clears throat> he, um, a few years ago, defeated his, his, Ru- uh, his Russian, kind of like his arch rival, um, Abdul Rashid Sadulayev. And, and many people who were in the wrestling world, not like the WWE or whatever, but like real wrestling, <laughs> <laughs> they dubbed it the match of the century. So so far apart are these two men in their own class. It's like no one else can compare. So when, when they got to the Olympics this year, they basically just like walked and breezed through the competition and, and knowing that they were kind of on a collision course to face each other. Uh, for the gold. And they did. And Kyle Snyder lost. But here's what he said. As big as the sport is in my life, wrestling doesn't define me. God alone defines me. Isn't that cool? Like this decorated, amazing wrestler in a class really with just one other person in the entire world. And that was his statement. And, and then I liked what he said. Actually, this, it was just a good word that he had after in the same interview. He said, if, because they were kind of asking, hey, how do you like, deal with all the stress? After, 20, after he beat this guy a few years ago, um, he got the nickname Captain America. Like, how do you live up to that? Come on. So they were kind of like, how do you deal with the stress of, of all this? And he's like, if God is relaxed, then his children should be relaxed. There's nothing, nothing to stress out about. So I wasn't stressed. I just continued to work on the things that I could work on. Friends, our, our job doesn't define us. Some people, that, some people, we know people, they let their job define them, right? They're workaholics. But our job doesn't define us. It's who we are in Christ. That is what defines us. And, and our wealth, Doesn't define us. It's who we are in Christ that defines us. Our our lack of wealth doesn't define us. You're like, yeah, Pastor, I I am more with that one. (laughs) But our lack of wealth doesn't define us. Okay? It's who we are in Christ that defines us. Our social status doesn't define us. It's who we are in Christ. Our popularity, our lack of popularity, like that doesn't define us. Okay? When you walk into a room, How how many people recognize you or not or greet you or not, that doesn't define you. It's who we are in Christ that defines us. And Jesus wants our identity grounded in him. Look at Galatians chapter 2. Look what he says in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I, I memorized this the first year I got saved because it was so transformational for me. And I was such, I was such a, 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 a geek, and probably still am, that I memorized it in the Greek, okay? But it was so transformational for me that I memorized it in English, and I was like, I'll just memorize I didn't even know Greek at the time, okay? That's how much of a geek I was. But I memorized it. Why? Because, like, look at these words, friends. I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Like, that should give us great hope. Like, Christ is in us, and, and he's doing the work, and he's the one living. Like, when he died on the cross, like, I died with him. But when he got his new life, I got my new life. Isn't that a beautiful thing? The new life in Christ. So that, that's in Christ. It occurs 89 times in the New Testament. 89 times. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And so we need to see ourselves, look, I am a child of God. Everyone, everyone say that. I am a child of God. Okay, so you're a child of God. You're united with Christ. I am his and he is mine. And guess what? If you are a child of the king of the universe, if you've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, guess what? If you're a child of the king, The the children of the king don't wear the rags of sin. They just don't. They wear clothes that go along with the title they've been given. Child of God. And so we we have a a, a title. We've been adopted into a family. And then we act according to the way of our Heavenly Father. So Paul is building them up and encouraging them the first few chapters. He talks about his example. He talks about affliction, which we'll look at shortly. He gives them a little Trinitarian theology, and then he he focuses on four main subjects in chapters 3 through 5. He talks about sex, work, the day of the Lord, and then roles in the church. Those are pretty big and broad categories, but those are so once he hits chapter 3, he goes into more instruction and talking about daily living. Look at First Thessalonians, and we'll see some of it. So in, in verse 12 of chapter 3, he's, in, he's praying a few things for them, and, and this is one of his prayers. Now may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Now we looked at that, and and, and we saw how that was... A, a Trinitarian statement of belief here because he's actually praying. He distinguishes in verse 11. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. So he's praying to to both of them. This was the way you'd set up a, a prayer uh, back then, or one of the ways. And then he, but then he prays just specifically to Jesus. And may the Lord, may Jesus make you increase in ab-. I mean, he's praying to Jesus, right? You wouldn't you uh, wouldn't pray to anyone but but someone who was God. Well, Jesus is God. And we're going to actually see, once we get into um, Second Thessalonians, we'll, we'll see the same thing uh, with one of his prayers and, and a couple other cool things about the Trinity. But he talks, uh, so we see that at the end as he's wrapping up that section, and he goes into verse 4, and he says in ver- chapter, or, uh, sorry, ch- chapter 4, verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now everyone's always talking about, oh, what's the will of God? What's the will of God? If you actually do a little study on the will of God, you can actually find out what the will of God is. Okay, so here's, here's, here's the will of God, and it even says it, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. You want to do the, word, the will of God? Start by abstaining from sexual immorality in all forms, thought, word, and deed. Okay, then he goes on to talk a little bit about work, and he says in verse 9, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia but we urge you brothers to do this more and more so I mean this is an exhortation for love and then he goes on and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so I mean he's he's our he's already instructed them on work in person and now he's saying, hey. Keep working with your hands. Keep doing what we instructed you to do. Then what happens is he talks about the coming of the Lord. We looked at that in depth. And then the last part of chapter 5 are those roles that we talked about in the duties, the duties of pastors and the duties of members, both to the pastor and to one another. Okay. Then he wraps up um, with a few thoughts at the end and with a prayer. All of these things are laid out for our instruction and edification. All of these things. And I was thinking about that today, like, I mean, this, this is the Word of God, right? It's the Word of God. And I feel like if, if someone, if like an alien ship showed up and, and, and they you know, like, here's a book that we wrote, like people would be buying it in the droves and reading it. Because they'd want to hear from some uh, intelligence from another world Yet, here we have, an intelligence has spoken much greater than any alien possibly could, and, and we just kind of treat the Bible kind of flippantly, even believers. And so God has, has graced us to give us his word, yet we don't even read it. We don't even study it. We don't even meditate on it. And, and thankfully, there's no prescription set out for how many chapters a day, how many words a day, how much time, because that's going to look different for each person. And I'm thankful it's not in here, because we'd all, we'd all be religiously following it, or at least trying to, and then beating ourselves up for not doing it right. And that's not the idea. The idea is that like, we're privileged to have this word and to have God already have spoken through the prophets, and finally through his son Jesus. And and the God that we serve like you realize the God we serve is a God of miracles, right? I mean, he's a God of miracles and he's the God who provides. Jehovah Jireh as the King James says in Genesis. So he's working and he's answering, he's answering prayer. He's always answering prayer and if we added up all the prayers for all the believers that he's ever answered. Like, I mean, how many volumes would that be? Like millions, billions, trillions? It'd be a lot. And sometimes they're just small, like tiny little prayers. And God's like, I got you. And he answers it. And sometimes it's huge, big ones. There's, there's a well-known um, chapel in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's called Loretta Chapel. You're going to see a couple pictures behind me in a moment. And they built this chapel, but the room was so small, it's not that big... Of a chapel, um, and the balcony was so high that they couldn't put just like a normal staircase in there because it would it would have just kind of taken up too much space uh, in this in this church, so to speak. So these church members, they pray and they pray and they pray and they pray, like because the builder that was building the balcony um, and, and and had built the church and he died. So they're like, what were his plans for getting us up there? We've got a balcony we got the pews and no way to get up there and it was probably a staircase but it, it, it would have taken up too much room so they're praying and this carpenter shows up and all he has is like a saw and a hammer and a carpenter's square and he builds a spiral uh, staircase it takes him six months and he leaves without getting paid but the end product is this spiral staircase. Now this goes back, I, I, I wanted to get more of a precise date, so I'm kind of shooting from the hip here, but it's like 1600s or 1700s, okay? Um, the end product is a spiral staircase that is a feat of engineering. Like, they don't know where the wood came from. It's not local wood. And, and they, when they tried to find the carpenter, they couldn't find him. They couldn't find him. They went to all the different you know, hardware stores back then, whatever it would be, and no one knew the guy. He just, once he finished, he disappeared. <clears throat> there is not a single center support to the spiral staircase. It's held up by itself. It is truly a feat of engineering. The, the staircase has two complete 360 degree turns with no center pole for structural support. The entire weight of the staircase rests on the bottom stair. Those banisters that you see, they were added later, um, basically to kind of make it safe walking up. And they actually added some brackets because uh, passing traffic, they were concerned, was going to mess up the staircase. So they kind of like affixed it to the top. That actually ended up messing it up. And they learned that the staircase was built with like a little, you know, spring in it, so to speak. It was built so that it could actually adjust to any, any movement in the building itself. They had a need and they prayed and the Lord answered it. You know, when we think about our faith, there's this story, maybe I've told it before. I've told it to my kids for sure. But this guy is he comes to the edge of the river. It's in the it's in the dead of winter up north and and he 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 he's like I got to get to the other side. So he starts to cross this frozen river. And as he's like halfway, like, the ice starts to creak and crack underneath him. So what does he do? He, like, you know, gets on all fours, right? He, like, spread eagles, and he's, like, slowly, like, inching his way so that the weight is evenly distributed. On, he doesn't want to fall through. That'd be death. <clears throat> and it's, like, still cracking and everything, and he's, like, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, like, this is the end. He's trying to, like, slowly reach reach the edge. And in the distance, he can, he can hear this rumbling. He's like, oh, it's the, it's the ice cracking behind me. Like, this is the end. It gets louder, and it gets louder. And he's like, he's laying there, spread eagle. And this this uh, carriage comes by, drawn by two horses. And the person kind of like looks down at him. <laughs> and, and, it, and it goes on. And then what does he do after the, the horse-drawn carriage goes by? I mean, he just stands up and Walks right off the ice, right? Like whether you skate onto the ice, this is how one person put it, whether you skate onto the ice with great confidence or tiptoe on it with great hesitation, it's the thickness of the ice that holds you up, right? It's not the fullness of your faith in the ice, right? It's not your faith in the ice that holds you up. It's the ice itself. And, and that's how it is with us and the Lord. Like we can talk about an assurance of faith, and some of our assurances is little, and some of it's really big. But but what's holding us up? I mean, it's God by His grace, right? And some of us might be more weak in the faith, and we're spread eagle inching along, and some of us are riding across. That's just that's talking about like an assurance of faith. But the faith itself is like that God gives us. Him uh, holding us up, the grace that he's given us, like, that's rock solid. That's not changing. So, I mean, I say, uh, skate on, brothers and sisters. I mean, what's going on? When we think about it, gospel initiation, or maybe you could say gospel justification, leads to gospel transformation. The gospel creates the church. The gospel creates, like, Boom. The gospel works inside of you. God regenerates you. It's like, it's like we're each little churches. we got the Holy Spirit. We're the temple, right? We're the temple. So it's like we're each like a little tiny church. Or, you know, more appropriately, uh, little parts of a church. But when you come together, you form the one true church. And it is the church of the living God. And what did... What did Jesus say to Peter in Matthew 16? And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you know why the gates of hell won't prevail? Because the church always prevails. Always. You're like, oh, I wonder if the the church is going to prevail. Hmm. No, no, the church always prevails this is why satan can have every single church building demolished in the entire world and the church will still be standing right the church will still be standing and he can drive us underground like the early christians in the catacombs and yet the church will still prevail you, you would think he would have got it through his head by this point okay but the church will still prevail and here's the thing, like, doesn't it feel good knowing God has this? Like, that you're on the winning team, okay? And it's not like, oh, it's the fourth quarter and we need like a Hail Mary to try to win this. Okay, I mean, it's like 450 to nothing with two seconds left in the fourth quarter. The game is practically over. So you're on the winning team. I mean, doesn't that feel good? And, and that, that the odds, they're not only ever in your favor, but there are no odds. Okay, you know when you have odds? When there's a chance. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that. There is no chance about it. It is a guarantee. That's what God says. The church will prevail. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. That is the promise. And if you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, if you're a part of the church, guess what? You will prevail. Who who are we supposed to fear? The one who can take what? Our body and just, oh, they can kill us, they can persecute us. I mean, that can happen. We've got martyrs, even today. They can't do anything in the life to come. And that's the life that matters. So we're sealed, and it's a done deal. It's over. And you've won, and you've got the victory. You know, we just we finished up the Olympics. I mean, what happens? They have an event like the 100-meter uh, dash. They run the race. Someone wins. Hey, they won. Um, but do they have their medal yet? No. But, but have they won? Yeah. Do they have the victory? Yes. But have they been awarded the victory fully? No. They don't have the medal yet. Well, friends, it, it's already been decided. The event has occurred. We have the victory It's the crown of life that is talked about. Why does the church prevail? Because Jesus is the victor. He's the one that goes before us. He's the one that leads the charge. Look at Second Corinthians chapter two, verse 14. "But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Okay, who leads us in the triumphal procession? Christ, right? We used to sing that song. Did we sing that? I think we sung it recently, didn't we? Yeah. So thanks be to God who leads us in the triumph. Like, that's uh, from this verse. <clears throat> I love that song. It's Christ. I mean, he's the one leading us. We're like, oh, I got to do this by myself, or I got to, I'm struggling. No, it's Christ. It's Christ. It always has. It always will be. He's going before us. He's leading us in a triumphal procession. And look what he's doing. And through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Like we're being witnesses. We're being witnesses. We're in the procession right now. It might not feel like it, but he's leading us in a triumphal procession. We are on the path of victory. It's been won. It's like we're coming home. And really, what he's doing here uh, is he's referencing, you know, when when they would go out and win a great w- war. Like, the, the military would come home, and, and the general, or sometimes maybe the emperor, he'd be in the lead and, and, and coming in, right? And they'd all be having this big old party, welcoming them home. And, and that's what, we're kind of in this triumphal process. Like, the victory's ours, we're on the march home, friends. We're on the march home. And while we're going, what are we supposed to be doing? Spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him Everywhere. So, we're on that procession and we're telling people about Jesus as we're headed home. We're headed home. We've got to tell people about Jesus. Listen, many have tried to attack Christianity. Ultimately, they have failed in their goal. Many have tried to destroy it. They have failed in their goal. As long as the gospel is around, the church will be around. As long as the gospel is around, the church will be around. Now, it might be small at times in some parts, it might be little, it might even seem forgotten. But friends, guess what? God doesn't forget his bride. He doesn't. And he doesn't abandon his bride and he doesn't forsake his bride. So he won't abandon us and he won't forget us and he won't forsake us. So church, you are not forgotten. And church, you're not abandoned. And church, you're not forsaken. No matter how bad it gets you're not forgotten. No matter how bad it gets, you're not abandoned. No matter how bad it gets, you are not forsaken. That is the promise of God himself to his church. Now, will we be challenged? Yes. Will we be put to the test? Absolutely. Look at, I was reading in my quiet time earlier today, 2nd Timothy. Look there briefly. And he says this, starting in verse 10 of 2nd Timothy chapter 3. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And then he says this in verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You want to live for Jesus, you're going to be persecuted, some shape or form. Much worse for our brothers and sisters abroad, but it's coming home, right here. You will be persecuted. So what do we do? We prepare. Look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 3, sorry, let's go 3. Verse 1, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and we sent Timothy our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we are destined for this what are we destined for the afflictions we will have afflictions you know there's some some parts of Christianity or, or branches of Christianity it's like oh there shouldn't be any afflictions or suffering that, that's bogus man don't ever go to a church like that I don't know how you can read your New Testament and think that afflictions and suffering don't wait believers. And if you just live your daily life for like uh, a month or a week or maybe a day, you realize that there is suffering and afflictions. And some of them, yes, do come from Satan, and some of them come from God's hand himself directly, because he loves us, his hand of discipline. But here he's saying this, for when we were with you, we kept telling you, verse 4, beforehand, that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass So that, I mean, the apostle has distress and affliction. And what's the comfort? Other people's faith, Other people pressing on. You want to be an encouragement to other people? You want to help people in their sufferings and afflictions? Then press on. Press on. That's what he says. We have been comforted about you through your faith. In, in, in the midst of everything that we've got going on right now, in the midst of everything we're going through, in the midst of everything that we're facing, we're comforted by that. Guess what? I'm comforted when I see my brothers and sisters in some of the toughest, nastiest, challenging situations. They stay faithful. And guess what happens? Then I end up myself in a a tough, nasty, challenging situation. What do I do? I'm like, hey, brother so-and-so and and, and sister so-and-so, like, they made it. So I can make it. They were the example for me. And guess what? At that moment, I'm being a, a future example for someone else to press on, to keep going in the midst of the distress of the affliction and the persecution. Look, look back at second, uh, second Corinthians chapter 4. Look what he says starting in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What belongs to God? The surpassing power, it belongs to God and not to us. So he gives that to us. And then he goes on, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. So we stand firm, brothers and sisters. We stand firm. We stand firm. And maybe we need to camp on this... Section for ourselves, because we can feel that way. We can feel afflicted, but not crushed. We can feel perplexed, but not driven to despair. We can feel persecuted, but not forsaken. We can be struck down, but not destroyed. How? Because the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So let us walk and let us stand firm, knowing that God has us whatever might come. Okay, Satan can take his best shot. Guess what? He already did about 2,000 years ago. He got embarrassed and humiliated big time. He will continue to be embarrassed and humiliated as he attacks the church. And time and time again, the church stands and the church prevails. So we stand firm because we have the promise of God. We have God himself on our side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that, that you're on our side and, and, and really we're on your side. Uh, we thank you that we're on your side. It, it is the winning side, the side of victory, the side of glory. Lord, whatever might come our way, because of the surpassing power of you, may we stand firm. May we continue on. May we put our hand to the plow and not look back. May we be counted as one of the faithful who will not deny you, but will keep your name on our lips to the very end. Whatever might come. So we thank you, Father, that you're glorified in our midst. We thank you that you are lifted up. We thank you that you shine on us and you shine through us. And we ask you we can continue to do that now for your glory. Amen.